Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Danelle M. Brown. Danelle has over two decades worth of experience in design and sustainability, a combination that is highly effective in today's business climate. Perhaps more interestingly, at least to me, her graduate degree is in the history of STEM, a program that combined science and technology with liberal arts and the humanities. So hi, Danelle. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate you uh, extending the invitation. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to ask you more about that graduate program in a minute, but what beyond that degree do you think it's good for people to know about your educational and professional journey to this point? Well, I think one thing that is uh, important to discern is uh, I started off my design background studying the interior, uh, like studying interior design with a focus of sustainability at the very beginning of um, the, I guess you can say the the trend in emphasis on green. Uh, so this was in the early 2000s when LEED was in its infancy. And an important thing to um, just be aware of from the standpoint of the practice and study of interior design and how that differs from other areas of design and even architecture is that interior designers, especially com- for commercial interiors, were taught as um, to be both design and system thinkers in addition to being design and system creators. So it's from the macro. So if you are, for instance, um, designing a store, you're thinking about the front end and the back end. Uh, how does the sales floor work and uh, kind of stimulate the sales of the product? What is the product? And in addition to that, it's like, what's the functionality in the back end? Like, how are the employees? Um, do they have a, an, a comfortable area to have a break? How is the the product shelved and stored. So it's really a macro background. And it was from that beginning and that foundation that I entered into other aspects of design from communication design, website, um, marketing, and strategy. I love knowing that all of that other stuff is going on. I'm certainly aware of the fact, especially in a large store, I'm a central aisle shopper. I don't have a tendency <laughs> to like go wandering off super far into the store. Other people do, but I I appreciate the idea that there's a training and a science and a theory behind both the way that these stores are constructed and set up and then the experience and the purchases that it's supposed to drive. Uh, I think that's that's incredibly interesting. And speaking of interesting combinations, Talk to me a little bit about this combinations of science and technology with liberal arts and, and the humanities. I'm an English major all the way through and through. I cannot even imagine what the coursework in this program was like. <laughs> well, I, uh, I must preface that I often describe my career as a jazz song, and I invite you to hold that uh, description in order to kind of make sense <laughs> of my story tell. Um, so 
officially, so that program, I'm actually one of the last unicorns uh, of the program that was at the Harvard Extension School. It was a focus in the history of science, technology, and medicine. And initially, I entered it uh, with an interest in, uh, more so in from the healthcare standpoint. Uh, back in the the early 2000s, I was, while I was designing uh, and working within a, uh, a major communications firm where we were working on uh, accounts from healthcare, technology, uh, f- uh, food, fashion, beauty, et cetera, I was also moonlighting as a birth doula, which oh is- Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> um, it's uh, kind of like a, a childbirth coach. Uh, so that happened around- so during the financial crisis in around 2007 through 2009, I did a, a pivot out of the real estate and architectural world. And so my pivot was into communications and being a birth doula. So um, <laughs> that, uh, but that was my, it made me aware while I was simultaneously working in a profession and designing communications for similar professions as well, I began to see how there were kind of uh, communication and knowledge gaps. And that was the part of the drive and curiosity that led me to the program. And so some of the courses that I studied um, or or took part in were a combination of uh, the sciences themselves. I focused in adult uh, development because I wanted to understand from the perspective of the the adult professional, um, we are, we're professionals, but we're also humans. So in order to become a better storyteller and understand the nuance of history, I wanted to understand the science of adult, adult development. So that was my primary focus of the hard sciences that I took. So for instance, I took like a, a neuroanatomy course and studying the brain science, and then also to the cognitive uh, adult development. But in addition to that, I was also taking history of science courses um, that focused on world religions and we ha- um, and world um, empires. And the reason why I was going at uh, so I, I will um, want to interject and just to say that the program allowed us to create our own um, our own curriculum, if you will. And so I wanted to understand the social um, aspects and the physical sciences that inform and shape industry. And I tend, I, I focused actually in the early modern period because I wanted to get to like the source <laughs> of a lot of the issues as opposed to um, focusing on a more contemporary time t- period. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I feel very sorry I missed the opportunity. If you were truly the last unicorn, I completely missed the boat. But I think your point about your career being like a jazz song is actually an excellent transition to one of the things that you and I had an opportunity to talk about previously, which is this idea of silos that pop up in any kind of community, right? Business organizations and otherwise. And that really has to do with each of our ability to communicate with people that are different than us or have different backgrounds than us. And I love this idea that, you know, on the one hand, we tell people at work, oh, you need to collaborate more cross-functionally. And then, of course, everybody pretty much just returns and talks to their own group again. But in as an incentive, what kinds of things can we potentially achieve if we're able to stay open-minded, if we can think, interior design and doula, if we can think 
you know, health. And we can also think, you know, the role of religion and, and culture and the way that people interact with all that. You've clearly had an opportunity to speak to a very broad range of people with different sets of skills and expertise. What's the opportunity if we can stay open-minded to that broad range of ideas? Well, the opportunity from a, a business standpoint, uh, particularly is opportunity to be innovative and to um, not only be innovative in one's own avenue of business, but for at the broader societal level. Um, so I would say, for example, when part of the my initial entry point into wanting to study uh, religion um, was because as a healthcare worker, and a community worker, I was working with people from different backgrounds. And so in order to be a better communicator, I just wanted to expand my um, multicultural awareness and understand this, the background and yeah, just to be a better communicator. And fast forward, um, my thesis was far from my starting point <laughs> when I started the program and went really heavy into like the history of economics and trade and industry. But still, even then in the early modern period, especially um, before like the terms such as like DEI became used a lot in industry. Um, so when I graduated, the program was in uh, 2016. So I began this research around 2014, was focusing on how, when there, um, the innovators at that time were more inclusive mm. and open to their sources of information and how they, um, just their work dynamics, trying to find and establish those correlations between outputs. For instance, um, my research was focusing on a university called Leiden University that was established in, uh, uh, I think it's 1545. And at the time, for a brief window of time, and that was kind of the key argument of my thesis, they were unique across, like, um, standing apart from all the other universities in Europe at the time where they had actually, or there's evidence of, women being on now not a oh, lot of goodness, women no not a lot of women <laughs> but there were but still at a, like an institution with yeah. like such prestige and respect um there was a, a woman who was helping with the curation of the professors um there was a, a professor of arabic studies for the first time there was a time period of religious tolerance where it wasn't just um Protestant Catholic, there was uh, there was openness. And so I was tracking that model just to show and make that argument that in the Dutch Republic, because of that initial kind of hub of collaboration before things went downhill to a degree in terms of uh, what can happen when there's not collaboration, uh, it just shows that evidence when we're working together and being more inclusive which is an ongoing journey and exercise for yeah. humanity. But when we do do it, there is multiple examples across history um, that show that the potentiality and the ability to be more, in more innovative and expand um, our awareness of how to do things increases. Now, at the flip side of that, and this can kind of goes into the topic of supply chains and value chains, which are separate, there are other social dynamics that take place. And if those, um, if we're not mindful of that, as history shows, there are, um, that's how uh, inequalities and efficiencies and things such as like the climate crisis uh, occur. Yeah. And that is something where, so I was completely spoiled 
when we had our pre-interview, because you're talking about all the the history and the study and the change of humanity and all that. Thinking, oh my goodness, I've I found my my philosophical soulmate here in, in looking <laughs> at how the science and the liberal arts and the history and just the study of people comes to comes together. Um, but initially we had connected to talk about sustainability and emissions. And I want to focus on that for a minute because I think you have an unusually realistic point of view on this. And maybe it comes from all of the things that you've studied and experienced. I'm a little bit on the outside of this, so I'm certainly aware of the sustainability movement, the role that it plays in, in ESG. And it's something that, whether it's through corporate social responsibility or simply trying to be good stewards of the environment, companies with heavy supply chains have focused on for a long time. And yet it's become so scientific as to almost exclude the very people that we would want to bring into the conversation. So back to this idea of innovation through inclusion, I even think some of the language used to talk about sustainability, I mean, procurement is terrible with acronyms, but I know there's the GHG protocol, there's LEED certification, there's True Zero Waste certification, and there's, what is it, one, two, and three, scope one, two, and three <laughs> emissions. Yes. There are so many acronyms and standards and frameworks. To what extent do people in procurement and supply chain need to figure out the details of all these different programs to start getting involved in the sustainability movement? So that is, um, there's a few ways to answer that. I'm going to try to answer it in a more like digestible way because yes, there are so many different frameworks. We're also to, particularly with scope three, uh, waiting for, um, as of the time of this recording, waiting for results uh, from or feedback from the SEC, whether or not certain things will be required. Right. Um, but I invite <laughs> people to consider and just re remember like the point of language. And it's like, we do language as um, Toni Morrison once said, and it's these, there is an overuse of acronyms and initialisms, uh, which can confuse everyone. And they can confuse everyone, but if you really look at the details, you can see there's actually a lot of overlap. And so this kind of creates the space to, um, I guess, getting cited and see that mm -hmm. there are opportunities to collaborate and it doesn't have to be as overwhelming as it may seem to be when you're looking at a menu of corporate uh, like alphabet soup. So for instance, what I mean by that is with, um, so I'm also, <laughs> again, with this jazz song situation, <laughs> um, I'm certified as a true advisor. And uh, so, tr so true is actually an acronym um, as opposed to something like ESG, which is not, ESG is not a word. It's just like a abbreviation. But with, uh, with true, true stands for uh, <laughs> the memory game. Uh, it's, it's total resource use and efficiency. And it's a zero waste uh, certification program that falls underneath the umbrella of the uh, US, uh, United States Green Building Council, which also is has programs such as LEED, which uh, is another acronym uh, in case everyone is not familiar with that, which stands for leadership, uh, energy, and environmental design. And so the thing about TRUE that is unique and how TRUE actually 
has some correlations with scope three emissions, which seems to be that's the the newer term within uh, the supply chain uh, corporate uh, vernacular. So both in true and in scope three, there are 15 categories. Each of these frameworks have 15 categories. Now, not all of those categories are like um, interchangeable or are connected. However, some of them are. And so that's just a, an example of how by at least brushing up on the different frameworks and if not like uh, learning them all, at least collaborating with others who have those knowledge sets, that can really help um, with efficiency. And so again, to elaborate that, um, so TRUE focuses on zero waste, but within the scope three emissions, um, accounting and mitigation, uh, there are also categories that um, consider what is the waste generated from uh, that company's uh, operations and what is like the, the end of life treatment for those sold products. And so if you are, if a company is doing like the data capture sets for, let's say trying to ach achieve zero waste certification under the true model, they could use that same base data for their scope three reporting and innovation and or collaborate with people in those categories to really create a more robust system. I know that's a lot, but I hope that kind of illuminates <laughs> the possibility. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because there's all of these ways to drive change, right? But then there's also how do we ensure or incentivize people to do what we want them to do? And you mentioned pending SEC requirements. Now, if I'm keeping this straight, uh, some of the the stock exchanges, right? Some of the trading floors are making the decision about whether or not you can be listed if you don't have an appropriate program. Is that am I close on that? When um, there, so it does get into like the weeds. There, so there are certain ratings um, and lists that companies can get listed on based upon um, their reporting. So, for instance, like uh, like there's certain like indexes that can be listed. But with the SEC regulation, it's more so from anyone who is like a public uh, company, in addition to like reporting their scope one and scope two emissions, which generally fall into the realm of fossil fuel usage and output, like, and the big like the big contributor is like one's facility, one's building. So what are like, what's the fuel used to like power one's building? Now the scope three is different and um, it is, could be a game changer from the standpoint of the SEC's regulation because that's not just calculating the ecological uh, footprint um, of one's business, like for instance, like the carbon footprint, it's um, expanding that into not just your building, but what it like the supply chain, like the fuel that it takes to drive the trucks that pick up your mangoes and to drive that yeah. to, I don't know, I'm riffing here, like make your jam and what are like what what energy is expelled by making the jars that create that jam and what um what are the cap like the emissions for the business travel that it took to meet the the farmers where you're sourcing from it's 
it's very elaborate. It's not just calculating yeah. like your electricity, electricity or like the fuel on site. So um, it is complex. And already um, just recently, uh, a couple weeks ago, the ISSB, another hacker uh, or case of initialism, um, created um, and, and released a sustainability uh, framework that is on a global standpoint. And they um, include this language of the calculations and the counting of the scope three. So here you have a, a new couple week old framework that is targeted for the global market. Um, and so in a, in a way it kind of doesn't, I don't, yes, it matters what the SEC determines at the uh, end of the year or whenever they release this, but the fact that we now have a global um, kind of expectation to meet these mm. standards kind of sets like the lane similar to, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, are, are you familiar with that term of a GP, uh, the GDPR for like the email yes, and like exactly. data security? So that is like an example of that was created first in the EU and California has like their own like data policies and technologies. And so even though those aren't the representative of the US per se, if businesses in the US want to do businesses with people who are residents of the state of California or who are businesses and citizens of the EU, you need to like comply those standards. And so it's the same, um, that's kind of like a, there's like a parallel with that, with the, the data privacy regulations with what's starting to happen with scope three um, reporting and climate, like approaches to climate action and uh, resilience in that that trajectory. Yeah. Now, here's a question for you, and this actually almost circles back to where we began. You talked about specializing in adult development, and mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of any form of school, uh, including documentaries and reading the newspaper and like anything I can do to continue learning. I, I absolutely love that. But it does seem to me that given how much is changing so quickly, companies might be missing the boat a little bit on preparing their employees. You know, when you think about the opportunities that you've had to study and learn new things, a lot of people in positions, whether in procurement or supply chain or elsewhere in operations, that have an opportunity to have a very important impact have simply not been given the background, the context, the language even, to approach some of these things with, with confidence. What type of educational investment or commitment do you think companies and individuals should be making so that they're actually prepared to take the journey associated with some of these changes that we're seeing roll out? <laughs> Again, that's a another complicated question scenario, <laughs> but there are answers though, and it's um, one of from the standpoint of adult development, uh, it's important to emphasize that a lot of like a lot of our problems and challenges that we're experiencing, the solutions are actually quite feasible, and some many of them exist. The biggest challenge is that it's not a it's not so much that it's all technical, a lot of it's behavioral. And that's something that from, um, so my master's is like in, it's like the liberal arts, it's not in business school, but I've worked in many business, um, many businesses and studied like 
history of business and from the standpoint of the curriculum of like traditional business administration and even from like the origins of industry and like the development of management theory from like the early or the late 19th century there's not talk about the human aspect in business mm. it's a lot of it's technical it's the it's industrious and not the humanists even going back to this the term like and you brought up language and as like someone um studying english and, and knowing the importance of language and how that um shapes things even if you just think about the word or the distinction between a value chain or a supply chain those terms don't really for, for someone just flipping through the page of like uh, or flipping on their screen of like uh, article on business doesn't scream humanity like it's yeah. it's very like flat it's not now so value chains is more so of like what's the business case how can we take these raw materials that magically appeared that's enter sarcasm <laughs> um and give them value and convert them to sale so value that value chains do naturally have more of an industrious connotation to them but the thing about supply chains which is very important is that supply chains is like the fuller story and that story also includes the human story and that i just think is key and so i guess one of um what I, to circle it back to your, your question is to have, it's important that leaders, A, remember and recall their humanity. We're going through so many different challenges and there's so many valid reasons to be afraid and to be like, oh, whoa, this is, this is going to require some big change and delegation. And to, so yeah, so first acknowledge, like leaders need to accept that and do the behavioral shifts themselves but then from a business ethics perspective, lead and help and work with the recs of like leaders working with their teams to identify like those resistance to change or um, consumer like behavior, or even for instance, like AI, like how do we adapt with having to learn uh, and change our business models? And so I think when there, if there is an ejection and remembrance of our humanity to, uh, solve for the human made issue that is climate change, that that is the more efficient way of finding resolve and doing it together, as opposed to just thinking that it's all technical and a few like, we just change the metrics and do it this way and using all the technology that we're going to get our way out of it. That's not going to happen. Like we need, it's a behavioral change. So that's yeah. where I tend to rally a, a upon more so as an approach is to get down to the basics of how do we learn? How do we collaborate? How do we get over our differences? Could it be that like, maybe it's like, what are the team building exercises to understand different ways of problem solving? I mean, there's, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> now, given everything that we've covered today, I'm actually really eager to find out what you're going to say to this next question. This is a tradition here on the Sourcing Hero podcast day now that everybody goes through the first time they join me. <laughs> so I'm going to give you two questions. You can pick either one to answer, and there are no wrong answers. So your choices are, what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or what does heroism look like in a business context? Hmm. Um, 
I would say uh, the sourcing hero. I'm a fan of hero stories. <laughs> and and what do you think a sourcing hero looks like? Okay, so in your source, opinion, in my opinion, I think a sourcing hero looks like someone who. confronts their own humanity and their journey of trying to create whatever is the the product of your story, if you will. And in doing so, becomes a steward and a champion, not only of one's customer story, but our whole global story. And so it's, I guess it just boils down to like, uh remembering that you're sourcing for a purpose and that purpose is not just for a dollar. I love that. I love this idea of of a person needing to confront their own humanity. That's you know, Danelle, I always think I've heard every possible answer to these questions. <laughs> and I never cease to be amazed at how much more there is to think about um, in, in this part of business. If people have listened in to today's conversation and would like to connect with you or network with you or learn more, what is the best way for them to get in touch? Uh, so the best way is to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, so my it's under my full name, uh, Danell, D-A-N-E-L-L-E, Marquis, which is M-A-R-Q-U-I, Brown. And so you can find me there, or you can also find me um, via, if you just Google like silo solving, I have a few, the name of like my business is, uh, <laughs> it's connected to like, uh, it's named after like Greek and Titan mythology. So I won't even try to spell it. But yeah, if you find me on uh, LinkedIn, you can uh, find my other channels and I'm very active there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero Podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for The Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.